Chapter Sixteen of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Sixteen The Project. It was not without surprise that Harcourt saw Glencore enter the drawing-room a few minutes before dinner. Very pale and very feeble, he slowly traversed the room, giving a hand to each of his guests, and answering the inquiries for his health by a sickly smile, while he said, As you see me. I am going to dine with you today, Harcourt, said he, with an attempt at gaiety of manner. Upton tells me that a little exertion of this kind will do me good. Upton's right cried the colonel especially if he added that you should take a glass or two of that admirable burgundy My life on't, but that is the liquor to set a man on his legs again I Didn't remark that this was exactly the effect it produced upon you t'other night said Upton with one of his own sly laughs That comes of drinking it in bad company retorted Harcourt a man is driven to take two glasses for one as the dinner proceeded glencore rallied considerably taking his part in the conversation and evidently enjoying the curiously contrasted temperaments at either side of him the one all subtlety refinement and finesse the other outspoken rude and true-hearted rarely correct in a question of taste but invariably right in every matter of honourable dealing though it was clear enough that upton relished the eccentricities whose sallies he provoked it was no less easy to see how thoroughly he appreciated the frank and manly nature of the old soldier nor could all the crafty habits of his acute mind overcome the hearty admiration with which he regarded him it is in the unrestricted ease of these little dinners where two or three old friends are met that social intercourse assumes its most charming form the usages of the great world which exact a species of uniformity of breeding and manners are here laid aside and men talk with all the bias and prejudices of their true nature dashing the topics discussed with traits of personality and even whims that are most amusing how little do we carry away of tact or wisdom from the grand banquets of life and what pleasant stores of thought what charming memories remain to us after those small gatherings how as i write this one little room rises to my recollection with its quaint old sideboard of carved oak its dark brown cabinets curiously sculptured its heavy old brocade curtains and all its queer devices of knick-knackery where such meetings once were held and where throwing off the cares of life shut out from them as it were by the massive folds of the heavy drapery across the door we talked in all the fearless freedom of an old friendship rambling away from theme to theme contrasting our experiences balancing our views in life and mingling through our converse the racy freshness of a boy's enjoyment with the sager counsels of a man's reflectiveness alas how very early is it sometimes in life that we tread the banquet hall deserted but to our story the evening wore pleasantly on upton talked as few but himself could do upon the public questions of the day and harcourt with many a blunt interruption made the discourse but more easy and amusing 
the soldier was indeed less at his ease than the others it was not alone that many of the topics were not such as he was the most familiar with but he felt angry and indignant at glencore's seeming indifference as to the fate of his son not a single reference to him even occurred his name was never even passingly mentioned nothing but the careworn sickly face the wasted form and dejected expression before him could have restrained harcourt from alluding to the boy he bethought him however that any indiscretion on his part might have the gravest consequences upton too might have said something to quiet glencore's mind at all events i'll wait he said to himself for wherever there is much delicacy in a negotiation i generally make a mess of it the more genially therefore did glencore lend himself to the pleasure of the conversation the more provoked did harcourt feel at his heartlessness and the more did the struggle cost him to control his own sentiments upton who detected the secret working of men's minds with a marvellous exactness saw how the poor colonel was suffering and that in all probability some unhappy explosion would at last ensue and took an opportunity of remarking that though all this chit-chat was delightful for them glencore was still a sick man we mustn't forget harcourt said he that a chicken broth diet includes very digestible small talk and here we are leading our poor friend through politics war diplomacy and the rest of it just as if he had the stomach of an old campaigner and and the brain of a great diplomatist say it out man and avow honestly the share of excellence you accord to each of us broke in harcourt laughing i would to heaven we could exchange sighed upton languidly the saints forbid exclaimed the other and it would do us little good if we were able why so i'd never know what to do with that fine intellect if i had it and as for you what with your confounded pills and mixtures your infernal lotions and embrocations you'd make my sound system as bad as your own in three months time you are quite wrong my dear harcourt i should treat the stomach as you would do the brain give it next to nothing to do in the hopes it might last the longer there now good night said harcourt he's always the better for bitters whether he gives or takes them and with a good-humoured laugh he left the room glencore's eyes followed him as he retired and then as they closed an expression as of long repressed suffering settled down on his features so marked that upton hastily asked are you ill are you in pain glencore in pain yes said he these two hours back i have been suffering intensely but there's no help for it must you really leave this to-morrow upton i must this letter from the foreign office requires my immediate presence in london with a very great likelihood of being obliged to start at once for the continent and i had so much to say so many things to consult you on sighed the other are you equal to it now asked upton i must try at all events you shall learn my plan he was silent for some minutes and sat with his head resting on his hand in deep reflection at last he said has it ever occurred to you upton that some incident of the past some circumstance in itself insignificant should rise up as it were in afterlife to suit an actual emergency just as though fate had fashioned it for such a contingency i cannot say that i have experienced what you describe if indeed i fully understand it 
I'll explain better by an instance. You know now, here his voice became slow, and the words fell with a marked distinctness. You know now what I intend by this woman. Well, just as if to make my plan more feasible, a circumstance intended for a very different object offers itself to my aid. When my uncle, Sir Miles Herrick, heard that I was about to marry a foreigner, he declared that he would never leave me a shilling of his fortune. I am not very sure that I cared much for the threat when it was uttered. My friends, however, thought differently, and though they did not attempt to dissuade me from my marriage, they suggested that I should try some means of overcoming this prejudice. At all events, that I should not hurry on the match without an effort to obtain his consent. I agreed, not very willingly indeed, and so the matter remained. The circumstance was well known amongst my two or three most intimate friends, and constantly discussed by them. I needn't tell you that the tone in which such things are talked of as often partakes of levity as seriousness. They gave me all manner of absurd counsels, one more outrageously ridiculous than the other. At last, one day, we were picnicking in Bayer, Old Clifford. You remember that original, who had the famous schooner yacht, The Breeze? Well, he took me aside after dinner and said, Glencore, I have it. I have just hit upon the expedient. Your uncle and I were old chums at Christchurch fifty years ago. What if we were to tell him that you were going to marry a daughter of mine? I don't think he'd object. I'm half certain he'd not. I have been abroad these five-and-thirty years. Nobody in England knows much about me now. Old Herrick can't live for ever. He is my senior by a good ten or twelve years, and if the delusion only lasts his time. But perhaps you have a daughter, broke I in. I have, and she is married already, so there is no risk on that score. I needn't repeat all that he said, nor that I urged against the project, for though it was after dinner, and we all had drunk very freely, the deception was one I firmly rejected. When a man shows a great desire to serve you on a question of no common difficulty, it is very hard to be severe upon his counsels, however unscrupulous they may be. In fact, you accept them as proof of friendship only the stronger, seeing how much they must have cost him to offer. Upton smiled dubiously, and Glencore, blushing slightly, said, You don't concur in this, I perceive. Not exactly, said Upton, in the silkiest of tones. I rather regard these occasions as I should do the generosity of a man who, filling my hand with base money, should say, Pass it if you can. In this case, however, resumed Glencore, he took his share of the fraud, or at least was willing to do so. For I distinctly said no to the whole scheme. He grew very warm about it, at one moment appealing to my good sense not to kick seven thousand a year out of the window, at the next, in half-quarrelsome mood, asking if it were any objection I had to be connected with his family. To get rid of a very troublesome subject, and to end a controversy that threatened to disturb a party, I said at last, We'll talk it over tomorrow, Clifford, and if your arguments be as good as your heart, then perhaps they may yet convince me. This ended the theme, and we parted. I started the next day on a shooting excursion to Calabria, and when I got back it was not of seeing Clifford I was thinking. 
I hastened to meet the Delia Torres and then came our elopement You know the rest we went to the east passed the winter in upper Egypt and came to Cairo in spring where Charlie was born I got back to Naples after a year or two and then found that my uncle had just died and in consequence of my marrying the daughter of his old and attached friend sir guy clifford had reversed the intention of his will and by a codicil left me his sole heir it was thus that my marriage and even my boy's birth became inserted in the peerage my solicitor in his vast eagerness for my interests having taken care to endorse the story with his own name the disinherited nephews and nieces and half-cousins and others soon got wind of the real facts and contested the will on the ground of its being executed under a delusion i of course would not resist their claim and satisfied myself by denying the statement as to my marriage and so after affording the current subject of gossip for a season i was completely forgotten the more as we went to live abroad and never mixed with english and now upton it is the same incident i would like to utilize for the present occasion though as i said before when it originally occurred it had a very different signification i don't exactly see how said upton in this wise my real marriage was never inserted in the peerage i'll now manage that it shall so appear to give me the opportunity of formally contradicting it and alluding to the strange persistence with which having married me some fifteen years ago to a lady who never existed they now are pleased to unite me to one whose character might have secured me against the calumny i'll threaten an action for libel etc obtain a most full explicit and abject apology and then when this has gone the round of all the journals of europe her doom is sealed but she has surely letters writings proofs of some sort no upton I have not left a scrap in her possession she has not a line not a letter to vindicate her on the night i broke open her writing desk i took away everything that bore the traces of my own hand i tell you again she is in my power and never was power less disposed to mercy once more my dear friend said upton i am driven to tell you that i cannot be a profitable counsellor in a matter to every detail of which i object consider calmly for one moment what you are doing see how in your desire to be avenged upon her you throw the heaviest share of the penalty on your own poor boy i am not her advocate now i will not say one word to mitigate the course of your anger towards her but remember that you are actually defrauding him of his birthright this is not a question where you have a choice there is no discretionary power left you i'll do it said glencore with a savage energy in other words to wreak a vengeance upon one you are prepared to immolate another not only guiltless but who possesses every claim to your love and affection and do you think that if i sacrifice the last tie that attaches me to life upton that i retire from this contest heart whole no far from it i go forth from the struggle broken blasted friendless and do you mean that this vengeance should outlive you suppose for instance that she should survive you it shall be to live on in shame then cried he savagely and were she to die first in that case i have not thought well enough about that it is possible it is just possible 
but these are subtleties upton to detach me from my purpose or weaken my resolution to carry it through you would apply the craft of your calling to the case and by suggesting emergencies open a road to evasions enough for me the present i neither care nor prejudge the future nor control it i know cried he suddenly and with eyes flashing angrily as he spoke i know that if you desire to use the confidence i have reposed in you against me you can give me trouble and even difficulty but i defy sir horace upton with all his skill and all his cunning to outwit me there was that in the tone in which he uttered these words and the exaggerated energy of his manner that convinced upton glencore's reason was not intact it was not what could amount to aberration in the ordinary sense but sufficient evidence was there to show that judgment had become so obscured by passion that the mental power was weakened by the moral tell me therefore upton cried he before we part do you leave this house my friend or my enemy it is as your sincere attached friend that i now dispute with you inch by inch a dangerous position with a judgment under no influence from passion viewing this question by the coldest of all tests mere expediency there it is broke in glencore you claim an advantage over me because you are devoid of feeling but this is a case sir where the sense of injury gives the instinct of reparation it is nothing to me think you that i am content to go down dishonoured to my grave but also to be the last of my name and station is it nothing that a whole line of honourable ancestry is extinguished at once is it nothing that i surrender him who formed my sole solace and companionship in life you talk of your calm unbiased mind but i tell you till your brain be on fire like mine and your heart swollen to very bursting that you have no right to dictate to me besides it is done the blow has fallen added he with a deeper solemnity of voice the gulf that separates us is already created she and i can meet no more but why continue this contest it was to aid me in directing that boy's fortunes i first sought your advice not to attempt to dissuade me from what i will not be turned from in what way can i serve you said upton calmly will you consent to be his guardian i will glencore seized the other's hand and pressed it to his heart and for some seconds he could not speak that is all i ask upton said he it is the greatest boon friendship could afford me i need no more could you have remained here a day or two more we could have settled upon some plan together as to his future life as it is we can arrange it by letter he must leave this said upton thoughtfully of course at once how far is harcourt to be informed in this matter have you spoken to him already no nor mean to do so i should have from him nothing but reproaches for having betrayed the boy into false hopes of a station he was never to fill you must tell harcourt i leave it to yourself to find the suitable moment we shall need his assistance said upton whose quick faculties were already busily travelling many a mile of the future i'll see him to-night and try what can be done in a few days you will have turned over in your mind what you yourself destined for him the fortune you mean to give it is already done said glencore laying a sealed letter on the table all that i purpose in his behalf you will find there all this detail is too much for you glencore said the other 
seeing that a weary depressed expression had come over him while his voice grew weaker with every word i shall not leave this till late tomorrow so that we can meet again and now good night End of chapter 16